0: How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen, and I'm speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm a 19-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make my music from my own home studio. Some of today's biggest hit makers work from home studios, so maybe we can help you accomplish your big dreams. In our last episode, I had the great pleasure of interviewing Miss Lenise Bent. We did a two-part episode with her, and it was an absolutely fantastic conversation. You can find that episode and lots of other great music podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. Today, we're doing something a little bit different, and this one's a particular fun one for me. I get to interview Mr. Steve Eichner. If you're into photography and you don't know the name Steve Eichner, well, to my mind that's a crime against humanity. Of course, I'm a bit biased because Steve to me is family, but still, he's got one hell of an eye. Starting off his career in the New York jam band scene of the 1980s, Steve eventually found himself as the house photographer for the Peter Gation Clubs in New York City in the 90s, and then making his way into working for Women's Wear Daily as a staff photographer, taking a variety of pictures. In his book In the Limelight, which just came out last month, Steve details his time in the Gation Clubs, taking his old archive photos and compiling one hell of a colorful book, and giving us a look into something that probably won't ever happen again. Now, like I said, if you don't know Steve Eichner's work, it's a bit of a crime against humanity if you're a photographer. I I myself use his images as a guide to inform my decisions and improve my photography, as well as inform some choices in my videography, which, if you look very closely, is in fact apparent in the music video that was released last month for David Nell called The Ballad of Sniffy McAdderall. Now, I cannot wait for you guys to listen to this interview. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Steve Eichner. Steve Eichner, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's so interesting to be talking to one of my great friend's sons, uh, Daniel, a.k.a. Dan, aka the bo- a.k.a. The Boy, Daniel and uh, Billy Cohen and Colleen Kennedy some friends of mine from the way way back and yeah I'm proud of you and uh, that you're doing good and I hear that you play like 75 different musical instruments.
0: That's what they keep telling me. I lost count a while ago.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and a podcast and a video and uh so many talented things. I would expect nothing less from uh Billy Cohn and uh Colleen Kennedy's offspring.
0: Well, thank you. I gotta tell you, it's it's it has nothing to do with me. It's all them. They did great work. <laughs> they did great work. I, I have I, I can take no credit for that. Um so I do want to start off. Uh, since we're talking about way back, you've been... Um, lately, obviously, we interact a lot, uh, maybe not as much over the phone, but we interact a lot uh, over the internet, on social media, Facebook in particular, um, and you've been kind of doing your your way back posts um, of, some of, the, of some of the archives that you've been looking through, which, you know, like, like all of us in the artistic world, we can kind of look through our archives nowadays now that we're sort of forced inside Um, so, in looking at those photographs and seeing, um, and seeing kind of the evolution of how you shot then versus now, which, you know, it's still you, it's very obvious you have this common theme of your style, but you can definitely see an evolution, as with everybody. Um, so that brought up a couple of questions, mainly what got you into shooting photography and um what what's the common theme of inspiration with every uh with every genre you do because you do a lot of different stuff party
1: it's all about (laughs) the party man I mean (laughs) you know that's the common theme is I always like to party and you know, it started out with music photography, and went into I, you know, I fell into this nightclub scene, which is my book into in the limelight, and from there I progressed into high society, which was my work with Women's Wear Daily. So, um, yes, yeah, so it really all started out for me when I got a, an after-school job in junior high school at my local camera slash record album slash stereo slash electronics store Mm -hmm. and they hired me mostly because I I loved stereos and I loved music and I tinkered with stereos when growing up and different speakers with different amplifiers and and so it was the most perfect job for me because um I would do the 45 records every week the top you know, the top 40s, and I would, load, uh, you know, I was a stock boy, basically, but they also had a photography department, and through working there, I learned about film and developing and how to fix cameras and aperture and exposure, and so I took that, and, and I got myself a camera, and I started to buy tickets to concerts, like The Who or The Rolling Stones and the bands of that day. We're talking about now the uh, you know the very early eighties, late late seventies, mm-hmm. so late seventies, early eighties, and I would take a camera, uh, take my camera, but I would maybe borrow a lens from the used equipment cabinet, mm-hmm. and take some you know take some film. Luckily, I got film wholesale. I got developing wholesale, working there, and I would go buy the closest seat I could find and take some photos. And I kind of honed my skills of, you know, you had to be a little bit sneaky about it because I didn't have a, a photo pass, um, but I honed my skills doing that. And I did, you know, photography around the house and my family and things that interested me. And so I combined the two things I loved, which was music. I, I tried to be a drummer. It didn't work out. I don't have any musical talent. And from there, it progressed to what do you want to do for college? And I didn't know. Photography was a hobby, but it never took it thought of it as a career. So I went to Fredonia, SUNY Fredonia, um, to study accounting (laughs) (laughs) Um, because my father was an accountant. And I thought, well, maybe he could help me out with that. And um, so the first year was great. Uh, because it was just a core curriculum. And it turned out that Fredonia is a music school. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that going in, but it's, it, they had a ToneMeister program. Hmm. And it was one of the finest ToneMeister programs in the country. And my college roommate, Tom Kalin, um, became the drummer for a band called DreamSpeak. So, you know, how one thing leads to another in life. And so I started photographing musicians in college and it all kind of came together. And I, uh, this the, the the sophomore year, uh, I started to get into accounting and statistics and business math, and I failed out miserably. I just didn't have the aptitude for it. I wasn't interested in it. So, and I also discovered the Grateful Dead <laughs> <laughs> through my roommate Tommy. And uh, so, and of course, there was the party again. It was like. Wasn't crazy about the music at first, but that parking lot scene and the, the, you know, the freedom of it and the traveling from city to city, going to see the band in different cities. Um, so I started photographing the dead and, and the dead scene and behind the scenes of the dead. And I was in California on dead tour between semesters and I got a call from my mom. She said, you're going to be on academic probation. I got a letter from the college. You got D's and F's. She's like, I'm not paying for you to go to school and party. So I'm cutting you off. So I continued dead tour with my friends. We had driven across country and we did the New Year shows. And then I went back to Fredonia and um, I went basically hung out there for a couple of semesters. And I went back to Long Beach, my hometown and just was kind of still doing the photography. And at that time, Tom Kalin, his best friend, Willie Bonham, um, Willie Bonham was a student at Columbia university, an alumni of your dad. And so that's how we know each other. And then there's this fraternity called Delta Phi that, Billy Cohn your father was in and Willie Bonham was in and it turns out that my roommate Tom only made it through his sophomore year. So over the summer we started hanging out a lot at Columbia University. And so that's uh, that's the summer of 84 uh, so yeah 84, 85 that area right and um, so now I'm now they formed this band called DreamSpeak. So getting back to the, the, the photography, so then um, I kind of had an epiphany. I was again traveling for dead tour and I was been tripping all night and the sun was coming up and I was in the Rocky Mountains and I was taking photos of the sunset and I just had an epiphany. I should be a photographer. And so it was summer dead tour and I was like, okay, so I came home and my mom was like, I found this two year photography program at Nassau community college mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, great. And I enrolled and I loved it. I excelled. I did really well at it. It just, and, and, you know, it was, I was learning all the technical stuff that I really didn't know and the background. So, um, So that was great. And then, you know, I had the bands and the parties going on and Columbia University frat house, the basement of that frat house was where the Spin Doctors started and and Blues Traveler grew out of that jam band scene of the early 90s. So my trajectory followed their trajectory.
0: Right. So you're in this jam band scene, You're, you're hanging out, you're doing the Columbia thing, you're you're not even a in an enrolled student in Columbia University, but you're a member of Delta Phi. Uh, you're you're taking pictures left and right. You've you've got you've got this thing going on um, that captured this crazy moment in time, and then you move forward and you go from you know capturing dead shows and these crazy hippie teenagers <laughs> in Columbia University to being a house photographer for Wetlands and other clubs around New York. So what was it like for you going from this hippie party scene to a similar yet different scene shooting in clubs?
1: It was like living two lives. It was really like the the, the hippie party scene was... The antithesis it was you know not getting dressed up and letting your hair grow grow long and and the club scene was about glamour and glitz and color and excitement it's almost like that the wizard of oz it's like black and white and color so that hippie scene yes there's the psychedelic side of it but it's you know it's a little bit drab and then you go to this nightlife scene which is just glitter and glamour and color and excitement and there's uh, a diversity to it that you know there was just very diverse and it opened me up personally to other lifestyles that you know that I wasn't exposed to growing up on Long Island and and, and in this kind of hippie jam band scene so right know uh, the the art and the dance and different music, hip hop and, and house music and dance music. Um, so for me, though, getting back to your first question, it was about documenting the party. I, I see myself as a documentary photographer. So I like to be like in the scene and get myself in there and be like a fly on the wall. but. I'm trying to show you what's going on. And I'm trying to give you a little bit of humor, my sense of humor. So I'm trying to give you my angle, my my sight, but to document that. And, and I knew that that club scene was something special because there was so much collaboration going on
0: there. Right.
1: And Peter Gation, I worked for, he was the club king and he owned the Limelight, Palladium, Club USA, and Tunnel. And my job was to capture celebrities in the club. And those days before social media, the newspapers were the social media. That was right. the social network. And going out to clubs was the social network or going out in general where there were. That's how you made a name for yourself. That's how you met people. That's how you found out what was going on. That's how you expressed yourself. Right. You couldn't phone it in. That was you had to be there. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so Peter, my job for Peter was to get the celebrity shots and get that in the newspapers to get the word out about the clubs. So my book in the limelight is actually 80% of the photos that I shot for myself, that I knew one day this scene wasn't going to last. I knew Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't going to last forever. And I, I wanted to share that with the world someday. So those photos for my book sat in an archive for years and years and years. I was out constantly shooting, 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 shooting. So it was so nice to actually go back and look back at those photos and and see what was going on in the clubs those days.
0: Sure. Uh, And, you know, to to your point of uh, just getting back to an early point that you were making uh, about, you know, it's sort of the Wizard of Oz, black and white, and color. A lot of the stuff that you shot for this in the psychedelic scene was in black and white, and yet you have this massive library of all these Gation era photos, all in color, and the and the just wide variety of of things that you see in these photographs is in, it, it's impressive. For one, I mean the the scene was you know I obviously I can only see it through. Uh, through an eye of a younger Steve Eichner, but uh you know the the scene was definitely a very impressive thing it was very it it was something to behold and I'm uh the photos that I've seen I can't wait to to get through uh all of the book uh when it's uh when it's released and we get to uh talk about talk about it with the rest of the world uh I can't I can't wait to get to see that in that vain obviously you know on this show we do a bunch of gear talk so i'm i'm really curious what was it like for you going from uh shooting on black and white film cameras to color film and and how was your experience you know i, I mean the the scene that you have fascinates me because just the lighting seems so incredibly strange to be in a very dark club and yet you get these very bright and brilliant shots. Um, so what was it like for you having to find your right film, find the lenses that worked for you, you know? Uh, and, and what were the questions that you had to ask yourself about about the gear that you were using?
1: Um, well, started out with economics I wasn't very financially stable in those days. So the gear I chose, the film I chose, um, depended on my economics. I mean, mm-hmm. so you use the same camera for black and white film or color film. It's just the settings right. and, and the flash you use. Um, but I started out with a knicker mat and anyone that's a tech or techie is, that's like a big clunky, heavy, old manual focus, manual exposure camera. And uh, I stepped up to a Nikon FM2, but I've always been a Nikon person going through. Mm -hmm. Um, So Nikon and Canon in the early days and continued with Nikon, but not Canon, I can still use all of my old Nikon lenses on my new Nikon cameras. Right. Um, just, just a point, point So, um, so for me, the, the equipment choices were based on economics and it was also based on what was I shooting. So I was in a club and, and with photography in those days, it's not like digital, it was trial and error. So you right. had to, and, and it also was a cost. There was a cost to every shot I took.
0: I right. figured
1: it out. Every time I clicked that shutter shutter was a dollar. And film is finite. So if I go out with 10 rolls of film, I have to budget that over the course of a night. And if something happens and I'm down to one roll, you know, you, you get into panic mode. So, um, so, the reason why I shot a lot of black and white is I had my own dark room and it was economical. I developed my own film and I printed it, and so that was more economical than buying color. Um, but it was also the clubs lent themselves to the color photography. Yeah. Now, when you have a digital camera, when I go back to a manual, a film camera now it's like I wonder how did I do this I can't see it right away it was this whole it was like a magic and a science and an art and you really had to know what you were doing to get the result you wanted and that came through trial and error and making notes and knowing what films you were using and notes and and um but so much could go wrong I mean if you're slightly on the wrong setting especially when you're shooting transparency slide film one stop in either direction and it's shot. So you really had to be on the right setting and always checking that. And then you drop it off at the lab and something could go wrong at the lab. Something could scratch the film, dent the film, chemical splatters. So you had to be kind of neurotic as a photographer and really (laughs) just always be checking your settings and making sure the film is locked right and, and yes.
0: Sure. I mean, I, and I think you bring up a good point with, with digital. I mean, I, I've i talked to quite a few audio engineers about their, their longing for rolling tape, and then as soon as they talk about rolling tape and the, the actual uh, have it, having to do it, they go, oh, God, I forgot what a pain this was. And I, I do see that similar, uh, similar uh, reaction in photography. I, I feel like a lot of people long for the film and long for that uh, that process, but as soon as they get it back in their hands, they go, what, what, Why? what?
1: <laughs> yeah, so going back to the Nicker, mat, I mean, I started with manual focus. So in a dark club, like you were saying, we did distance focusing. You could not even see your subject, so I would choose F8. And that would be, say, between five and 10 feet. Mm -hmm. And I would always position myself that I knew that if I was five to 10 feet away from my subject, that the photo would be in focus. And going from that to, uh, I I got a Nikon 8008. And that was the first autofocus with a dedicated flash with a beam that went out. It was still a film camera, but it had a beam that went out and focused on the subject. And so then it got slightly easier because you could autofocus and my shots were always sharp. And so then the progression from there to digital, being able to see the photo and make adjustments and know that you got the money shot and then be more experimental. So there was that progression in in cameras as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, this is a, this is a question that I'm, I'm, I'm curious to ask uh, every photographer that I, that I talk to how, how early on did you jump onto the idea of digital photography? Because obviously there was like that early phase where it was, you know, it was very low res. It was not great. Film was still better. In some ways, film does have some aspects. But, you know, there, digital now is a lot better than it was, say, in 2000 or mm-hmm. 98. Um, so what? when did you finally see... Uh, digital cameras as a viable option for uh, professional photography and and what what was the what was the camera that made you change Um, well that
1: was so I started working as a full-time staff photographer for women's wear daily in 1997 Mm -hmm. and at that point they were buying the equipment for their staff photographers Um, and it was up to them when they transitioned into digital, I was experimenting with it on the side. I had a Nikon cool pics and I was starting to get myself used to digital. Um, a little side part of my story is in 1994, I registered photography.com and my vision with that was to be what Getty is now. Mm -hmm. So, um, In 1994 we were still shooting film and the idea was to shoot film scan it get it out on the internet so that magazines and newspapers could upload it and have digital photos fast and I managed to to do that so I was in the scanning and digital in my say personal photography very early Mm -hmm. and the internet but using it professionally not till about 2002 Um, we were bought the Nikon, uh, D one hundred and it was impressive. I I still have it and it still works and it's still actually, they put a lot into that very first digital camera. I think they may have even taken some steps back until they are where they are now with the, the D five. But, um, so, but I remember shooting with it and it was slow and it was clunky and I, we used to shoot runway shows. So we would shoot runway shows with that. and with you know, a film camera, you're machine gunning, you know, three frames a second and you had a film changer and you were basically changing out cameras because you couldn't load film fast and fast enough. So you had an assistant with you and they would hand you a full camera and while you're shooting, they're loading. Um, so then this slowed the process down. It was great to have digital and, and be able to see it and all of that, but the cameras weren't up, To the technology that we needed for professional use, and as an event photographer, we're shooting fast and we're knocking around and we're so. um, It took a few iterations of the you know the 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 D1, the D2, you know, and and then it started to reach our level. but, of course, the magazines the newspapers, the people we work for wanted those digital photos fast. Everybody expected it faster and faster.
0: right this is, This is really an interesting question that I, that i I've, I've sort of been stewing on for for a little bit. Did digital change the way you looked at photography?
1: It did, and yes, of course it has to uh. Right. When I walked into the clubs with a camera, I was a rock star. Mm -hmm. Everyone didn't have a camera. You were, you know, you were, it it was something special. And when you showed up with photos, it was something special. You showed up with hard copies. And that's kind of how I built my career was I would go out and give people some photographs of themselves. And it, it was magical. It was just wonderful, and it was, you know, you, you hope they came out, and when they came out, and it, there, there were, you know, there was the taking of them, which was the thrill, and then there was the second thrill of seeing them develop. And either you're doing it in the dark room or you go to the lab and you pick it up and you put them on the light table. and You know, it's just a double thrill, and I, as everyone became a photographer, it, for me, it seemed more pedestrian. Uh, I still admire photographers that uh, do a great job in digital and find a way to do something innovative and different. So uh, Tyler Mitchell is, the, is a very hot, young, new photographer. He's in the New York Times. He has a book out, and he was being interviewed by Ryan McGintley, who's also a young, hot shot photographer. And Ryan asked him, film or digital? And Tyler says film digital is too easy <laughs> so yeah. so yeah and he's a, this is a young 20 something and he's just it, it slows you down so one of the things i've noticed in my scanning project is how uh, how frugal i was how much i thought i i would shoot three events on one roll of 36 exposures sometimes mm-hmm. because you it makes you slow down and think and focus and frame. And, and you, it really has to be something special. And once I started to get into digital, everyone was just machine gunning everything. And you just have thousands and thousands of images of, of everything. So it, it definitely made me feel different about digital. And, and, and then as the phones came in and the, and the, and the iPads and phones and, um, and now uh, my wife just got the new iPhone 11, and, we, and I have an iPhone 6. And we took the same photo of our building looking up in the evening sky, and hers was sharper than mine. So even the technology is just mar- marching forward, and um, the computer inside the iPhone is so advanced. It's so wonderful. It's so good. And you can't argue with that. A great photograph is always going to be a great photograph. And yeah. it's not the purse. It's not the the equipment. It's the photographer.
0: Right. I, I completely agree with that, and I I think I think that's something that perhaps and, and perhaps you've seen this as well. I think that's something that people forget. Um, I I know people forget that in the audio world. You know, they say, "Oh, I got to have this ten thousand dollar microphone." This you know. Fifty million dollar microphone preamp, and then I'll and then I'll be the greatest audio engineer in the world. I think it's I, I think it's similar for every artistic, uh, artistic medium and every artist, uh, be it in in audio or film or photography. Even so, uh, to the other end of the that point, there is some amount of nostalgia uh, associated with. Some of the older gear, especially, you know, my people of my generation, 18, 19, 20, even mid-20s, etc., going back to film, as you were saying, <laughs> um, just as some of us in the studio world are going back to tape for their masters and things of that nature. And I, I look at that and I'm, I'm understanding, but also in a way uh, surprised as much as I'm, I'm, I'm understanding and, and feel that way myself. So to that point, do you ever find yourself uh, sort of getting that nostalgia for for the old stuff and and you know, going back to shooting three events on a on one roll of film?
1: I don't. I, I think I enjoy digital. It makes the whole process a lot easier and faster. Um I don't enjoy photo, Photoshop. I really don't like spending lots of time in front of a computer, and and uh, mm. so I know the rudiments of Photoshop. Um, I, I had the the fortune of working for Women's work Daily and being able to shoot digital and turn in my photos, and someone on the, the technicians on the back end did the Photoshop and the final retouching to get them out to the magazines and newspapers. However, in this book project. I found around 20 rolls of undeveloped film, Wow. and my freezer, and that was <laughs> really cool. And I they've been there, and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get there. And they, they were like 17, 18 years ago that I shot them, and so I took them to the photo lab. And the the uh, proprietor was skeptical. He said, oh, I don't even know if there's gonna anything gonna come out. And so we developed them and to my delight, there were images there. There were images of the World Trade Center, the original World Trade Center, shot from Brooklyn with the Brooklyn Bridge, and there was uh, a, a, there was another photo shoot I did with Winona Ryder, that you know an event with Winona Ryder so. Um, and I had that thrill again and it was just that feeling of, of like that latent image that just you, you you did it and then it sat in a container and and you you know the the light hit film and chemicals washed it off and then you shine light through it and you know and and I scanned them but I remember when I it was all putting a roll of black and white film in your camera and feeling it go through. And and when you click the shutter and you move the film advance knob and and just knowing when you get to the end of the roll, the advance knob stops and you rewind it into the canister and then you put that canister in your pocket and you take it to, to home and you... In the dark room, you put it in another canister in complete darkness and you develop it and chemicals wash over it and they they wash away the silver where the light didn't hit. And then you rinse it and and, and it comes out and you hang up these wet negatives and it's eureka time and... Wow! Look, it, it's so special. And then they dry, and you cut them, and put them in sleeves, and put them in a your enlarger, and shine light again through them onto light-sensitive paper, and put those through chemicals, and watch the image develop. It's just there's something about that that isn't just click, look, you know, put it through a filter and an Instagram, and and there you go.
0: Right. Yeah, and and. This, this actually brings up another question uh, that I, I think I, I like asking this to to people in audio and I actually uh, I interviewed John O'Manson a few weeks ago like I, like I was saying and uh, you know we had we had talked about you know the immediacy of of digital audio and being able to play it back immediately and not having that moment to sit there and think about the take that you just did as you waited for the tape to rewind and and get the counter back to zero. So uh, I'm I'll ask you the same question roughly that I asked him, which is, do you think in modern photography we miss that? Let's hold our breath and see how this turned out, or do you think we're allowed that still while we uh, wait to go back and look at the photo through the through the screen of our digital camera?
1: I think there is an art to digital photography. I think that the people that know how to do it right and use the photo, the Photoshop right and the filters right, um, it's their own magic. It's a different magic. It's not the same magic. Um, the using film is, is is much more tactile. It's it's tangible. It's you're actually. The light is doing something. There's a chemical reaction. I'm sure it's right. doing the same thing in digital. It's, you know, it's hitting off of uh, electrodes on on the sensor, and the light is reacting with the sensor in certain ways. But um, it seems like so much less can go wrong. Mm-hmm. The the holding your breath aspect of photography was I hope your photos come out or you know, <laughs> uh, I- yeah. And even not knowing that, you know, I, I would go out with ten rolls of film, and not knowing, will that last me all night? There's something that could happen, and and budgeting your film, and and so. Yeah, and always having two cameras so that if one mechanically breaks, because cameras were a lot more mechanical, now you have mirrorless cameras. Right. And the whole idea with the mirrorless camera is you don't have that shutter going up and down, so there's no clunking, there's, there's nothing mechanical going on there uh, as far as uh, that can actually break, you know, like gears and, and shutters and things like that.
0: Now, I do want to get back to something that you would talked about. You shoot Nikon, you said, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about how you can... Uh, all, all your old lenses are interchangeable with all your new digital cameras. So... Yes. In that regard, um, I mean, I'm sure you have some modern lenses that you really love, but do you find yourself going back to the stable and the, and the old favorites and um, Often or are you always looking forward to to the newer, perhaps better stuff?
1: I've never really been a real techie techie person. To me, the camera is like a hammer. It's a tool that I do (laughs) my job with. And I can, I, I feel comfortable when I get comfortable with a camera, it's like an extension of my hand. And often you're in the dark or you, you have to make quick decisions and quick changes. So I can basically operate my camera without looking at it because sure. I know where all the buttons and knobs and, 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 the the feel of a zoom. And so you get to know your camera. So for me, it was more about relationships with my subjects and knowing the ebb and flow of an event and where to be and where to place myself to get the shot and or a band knowing that, you know, when where to be when the band is going to, you know, when uh, Roger Daltrey is going to jump six feet into the air. So, um, so, uh, yes, tech. The, the 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 equipment mattered to me but i wasn't and i know photographers like that that are looking at histograms and reading reviews and and all of that sort of stuff and and for me it was it was really just my tool it wasn't i didn't need to have the best the most cutting edge the, i it if it worked well and it felt good and it got the job done i, I liked it
0: i want to talk about some of the subjects of the book and i, I... You know, I, I was looking through your Vanity Fair article and it was it, it was very interesting to to both see what you had, what you were talking about with this, as well as some of these shots, um, especially some of these palladium shots that are just outrageously fun. Um, <laughs> how did you interact with the subjects that you took uh, that are now the, the, the featured uh, pictures of the book?
1: Well, the beauty of it was they interacted with me.
0: Mm-hmm. They
1: were there for the camera. They were getting dressed to be seen. And so it was wonderful because I would go to the club with a working camera and film and knowing how to use it, but they would pose, they would glam, they would vogue. Um, so the subjects really, we had a rapport. And it was like a dance, you know. We had a dance, and we danced it every night. And it was it was um, their way of expressing themselves to the camera, and my way of of creating art. And we we just worked together. So the photos in the book were me um, working with the people, and the the. Peter Gatian club experience was experimental. He had artists like Kenny Scharf come in and design a room mm-hmm. or he had the Sunday night hip hop night at the tunnel. So I was exposed to, and I was capturing, uh, you know, uh, Tupac Shakur partying at the tunnel or, so the 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 experience of the book is really like walking through the clubs that's what we wanted to do my my partner gabriel sanchez who i should mention now he's uh formerly a buzzfeed when we started this project photo editor for buzzfeed and now he just started with the new york times um so when he did the edit in, in the in the vanity fair article he says We wanted to create it as if you're walking through the club with Steve and and give you that experience. And so for me, it was walking through the club and, first of all, the environment, the architecture was different every weekend. He brought in artists during the day and he gave them a room and said, here, make it beautiful. Do your, do your thing. And, or there, there was a, a foam room or a, a ball pit room. Um, there was a skateboard ramp. There was, you know, and so, mm-hmm. so there was that. And then the costumes of the club kids. So the club, it was the club kids era and their whole persona was shock and awe. That was it. It was to provoke and shock and, and dress and makeup and hair and, you know, green, blue lipstick and, 20 foot platform shoes. So, um, and then the music, what was playing, the DJs were all innovating and playing house and rave and and techno. And so it was a way to really innovate and create and the club itself fostered. He created an environment. It was, you know, it was like a, a primordial pool of creativity and I dove in there with my camera, and everywhere I looked, there was just something to capture. It was exciting.
0: Yeah, I mean that—that that was that was the thing that I—I I mean, every every photograph I I see of yours, I'm at a loss for words for explaining the the reaction I I feel with some of the photographs I've seen of yours. I I suppose they they are awe inspiring. They are very striking and bold and flamboyant. And I, 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 definitely love that about your work. I always, I always find something different in every photograph. And every time I look at the same photograph, you know, I don't, I don't think I see the same thing twice. Um, Thank you. In, 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 in... <laughs> That's
1: a huge compliment. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's true. It's something that I, you know, as, as an aspiring photographer and, and videographer and you know, audio engineer, it's, it's, it's something that I want to see in my own work. And so I, 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 you know, I have to share that with people who I, I see that with, because that, that is, that, that is my goal to find, to find that way when people hear or see or think of my work, they don't think of it or hear it or see it the same way twice. And, mm-hmm. and I, I find you've kind of nailed that, and I can't I, I, I really can't wait to, to see the entire book. A question has come up in my mind that I thought of earlier because you were talking about, uh, you know, shooting hip-hop nights uh, at the Palladium or at the Tunnel or at Club USA. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it, at that time, hip-hop was about telling a story. Being that you were there... Uh, telling that story, do you ever associate yourself with that sort of hip hop ideal of, you know, we're here telling the story of what happened then. We're 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 being the the steward of this story.
1: I never thought of it that way, but I approach my photography that I'm bringing you along with me, and I am the steward of the story and. Um, you know, I've never really thought of it that way, but that's an interesting point. One of the greatest, I mean, the only thing I could think of is one of the greatest compliments I received was when I was working for Women's Wear Daily. Um, the next day, a socialite wrote me an email and she said, I was at that party and you made it look better than it actually was. (laughs) You made it look more fun than it actually was. Um, But, uh, you know, so going back to my book, you know, there's like a little bit of humor, like I want you to look deeper. So choosing the photos there, there's one where there's a couple making out in the bathroom. On its own, it's kind of a cool shot. There's a couple making out in the bathroom, and it's a co-ed bathroom, and, you know, it's a a man and a woman in a bathroom. And then if you look a little deeper, inside the crack of the urinal, you see somebody's taking a leak in there. So it's just like (laughs) that one little bit like, okay, they're doing their thing and having their moment, and then he's having his moment. (laughs) So, um, yes. I hope that answers the question.
0: (laughs) I had a lot of fun talking to Steve, and if you couldn't tell, I was a bit starstruck. And I don't get starstruck often, especially when my guests are family. However, this was a pretty notable exception because for me, Steve was the photographer that I looked to when I was learning how to be a photographer. And so most of my decisions in the visual medium are based around his work. So being able to fanboy out on Steve and learn about his Process and his history as a photographer was a lot of fun and a true privilege. If you want to find Steve, you can find him at steveeichner.com. You can also find his book, In the Limelight, kind of everywhere. Just Google In the Limelight, they're available in Target and other major retailers. Additionally, go check out his interview with Vanity Fair and Variety. They're both excellent and they both detail his book incredibly well. Additionally, just go get the book. You will not regret it. This is Blue Girl Gear Talk, and today we actually have our guest Steve Eichner on Gear Talk with us, and we're going to talk about some photo gear. Now, I really want to ask you, Steve, for the people who don't really know anything about cameras yet and who want to get into the DSLR side of things from a point and shoot or their phone camera, what would you recommend for a good starting outfit for someone trying to get into photography?
1: If you want to go mirrorless, the Sony that we were talking about before, the A7s are really, really good. My I don't use one, but my colleagues all rave about them. Um, if you want a a shutter camera, a non mirrorless, I use a Nikon D750, and they have a really good package. It's it's like twenty five hundred dollars with the, uh, the 28 to 70 lens 2.8. Um, so that's a really nice package. It's a great camera. It's a great sensor. Um, it's affordable, you know, it really depends what you think is affordable and then there are step downs from there. There, you know, there are the, there are lesser expensive Nikons that are also really great that come in packages. Um, But I would also recommend getting a Pentax K1000, which is a film camera or an early a Nikon FM2 or, or a film camera that and they're super cheap now I mean if you have or holding on to film cameras and expecting to sell them for money or if you inherit them they really don't have any 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 value right now so sure. it's really you can go on eBay and find all kinds of really good that were the best of the best you know an F2 and F3 uh, film camera and uh uh, train yourself. And, and, you know, there's so much information on the internet about tutorials and how to use cameras. And, um, so yeah, those would be my recommendations. I'm not really a Canon guy. I, I had a Canon G, G six, G seven point and shoot camera, which mm-hmm. I liked a lot. Um, but I'm a Nikon SLR guy.
0: Cool. Now, I want to ask, and I think this is a general rule of thumb, but I want to hear your philosophy on it. Um, for those who are going to buy body and lenses separately, it's, generally speaking, the best philosophy and the best practice to spend more on the glass, right?
1: Yes. Lenses are the most important. Good glass is everything. Good right. optics is everything. Right. Um, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of prime lenses, so... You know, an eighty-five one point four, an eighty-five one point two, a fifty one point four, is a you know it's a great prime lens. Uh, you know, uh, a thirty-five f two. Um, so, and though prime means non-zoom, just a straight yep. focal lens. So. Um I just think you know there are great zooms and I use mostly zooms because that's dictated by the work I do. Sure. But if I'm going to shoot a headshot or a portrait or a studio session, I'll go to one of my prime lenses for sure.
0: I completely agree with you. A great prime lens, if you have the right circumstance for it, will make or break a shot. Um, to that point, I'm curious. Do you think that people underestimate prime lenses? I mean, to my mind, it seems that people who use point and shoots with zooms and phones that obviously zoom mm-hmm. just by a pinch of the phone screen, they, they don't often think of prime lenses. They think they're, they're more of an afterthought. So mm-hmm. do you see them mostly as an afterthought in people's minds or are they more well-loved than I make them out to be?
1: I think so. I think that once you see it side by side, you see the difference. Right. So I really you can really see the difference of a good prime lens with coated glass that's you know uh, made in Germany and and uh, so of course it's ease of use and most cameras now when you buy a package you're getting a zoom lens with a plasticky lens with not very good glass and um, So do people underestimate? Of course they do if they don't know if they're not professional photographers. But I think once you start using prime lenses, you want to use them all the time.
0: I want to jump topics in equipment here. I want to go from glass to flashes. And I think this is an important topic for a lot of people because a lot of people don't necessarily think about flash and and lighting. They think, you know okay, I have the flash on the camera body, and that's all I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's a lot of different flashes and lighting for different scenarios, different shoots. Um, people use soft boxes for studio sessions versus on-the-go. You'd probably use on-the-camera flashes or uh, off-the-camera flashes that you hold in your own hand. Um, so I'm curious, for your style of photography, what flash best suits you? What do you like using?
1: So what my style revolved around in my latest years in Women's Wear Daily, which, you know, I developed a style over time, but I stuck with, was the Nikon D750 or the Nikon D4, which I was using at the time. Mm-hmm. Um with the eighty uh, to twenty-eight to seventy lens, two point eight, and the SB eight hundred, because there is an SB nine hundred and SB nine ten, but for me the most perfect flash that they ever made was the SB eight hundred. It's small. It doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles of zooms and because the the 900 would zoom in and out when you didn't want to and the 910 and i never could really get it the exposures were never consistent for me hmm. especially off the camera with those flashes but the sp800 it was just it fit in the palm of my hand so well and the exposures were always spot on and then on that, I use that uh, diffuser cap that comes with the, the the flash when you buy it. It's like that little white diffuser that snaps over the top, right? And so, and and off the camera mm-hmm. with the the TTL cord. So they actually have a cord that the TTL sensor sits on top of the camera, right? And so it, it's shooting the beam, the, it's sh- actually shooting the focus beam from the, the hot shoe. No matter where you hold that flash, it's still focusing from the hot shoe, so you're getting everything perfectly focused, and no matter where you hold that flash, you're getting the perfect TTL lighting. Right. Um, so that's that's my style. That's how I like to shoot, that's my preferred style. Um, and then I usually will drag the shutter a little bit to get the available light in there as well to mm-hmm. get that mixture, and then I'll shake the camera sometimes a little bit. I'll get a little motion blur. I'll get a little light shake in there. I'll get streaks of light. That kind of brings it to life to me for me sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'll also uh, use a tungsten gel on it, so what I'll do is I'll match the the flash to the tungsten light in the background, so you don't have a lot of RNG light. You don't have the blue light from the flash and the RNG available light.
0: Right. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. That's my preferred... That's my style that I developed over time.
0: Interesting. Now, aside from obvious cases like what you were talking about with using a tungsten gel, how much do you use gels and filters on your flashes? How much do you like using that kind of light?
1: I went through a period where that's all I did in the studio. I would use a lot. You know, it was like a psychedelic thing for me, a colorful thing. I was kind of in a David LaChapelle moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I still do. I like to use colored gels in the studio. I think it, it adds a lot of drama.
0: This is Music From Blue Girl, and today I have something a little different for you. Now, usually I do something with a lot of live instruments, but today I'm going to actually share an electronic track with you that I produced. Now, I've been sitting on this one for a while, not knowing what to do with it, and just sort of figuring out where I want to take it. Do I want to leave it an instrumental? Do I want to put a melody to it? Or do I want to put a vocal to it? What am I going to do? Maybe you can help me. Let me know what you think about this song and tell me where it should go. Should I add a vocal to it? Should I put a melody on it and leave it instrumental? Should I put a horn part on it? Uh, What should I do? Now, at this moment, the only live instrument on this song is a guitar solo. But uh, I think for the time being, I'm going to save that for a later date and uh, give you the basic arrangement from the intro the first chorus. So uh, without further ado, here is my nameless electronic track. I hope you like it. That's our show, everybody. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. Special major big thank you to Steve Eichner for being on the show. Man, it was so fun talking to you. I enjoyed our conversation so much you don't even know. Tune in next time. We're going to have Mr. Tony Saunders on the program. We're going to talk about everything from growing up being Merle Saunders' kid and playing with Jerry Garcia and so many other greats all the way to his single and new album out right now, which has been at number one for the last few weeks, and if memory serves, it still is. As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you. For now, though, this is Daniel the D3 Cohen signing out from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios right here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record.